Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling themes in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week, we are looking at the theme of order and chaos in Harry Potter. So to start us out, we have a quote, and this quote comes from the final Harry Potter book. It's in the chapter, The Battle of Hogwarts. And basically, Crab has let the fiend fire out in the room of requirement. Harry seized a pair of heavy-looking broomsticks from the nearest pile of junk and threw one to Ron, who pulled Hermione on it behind him. Harry swung his leg over the second broom and, with hard kicks to the ground, they soared up into the air, missing by feet the horned beak of a flaming raptor that snapped its jaws at them. The smoke and heat were becoming overwhelming. Below them, the cursed fire was consuming the contraband of generations of hunted students, the guilty outcomes of a thousand bad experiments, the secrets of the countless souls who had sought refuge in the room. Yeah, I think this is an interesting look at order and chaos because in this scene, it is so chaotic. Mm -hmm. You have the fiend fire doing its thing. They are trying to find the diadem in the midst of all of these piles that have built up over centuries, you know? And it's so sad because all of this history is being destroyed. Crab. (laughs) I know you don't care, Crab, but we do. And for a place like the Room of Requirement that can be so orderly that you can walk in and it can provide the perfect room with exactly the equipment you need for Dumbledore's army Mm -hmm. versus this chaotic mess is, yeah, really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Because we see how earlier when Harry's trying to get in there for what Draco's using it for, he doesn't know exactly what Draco is using it for, and Mm -hmm. so he can't access it. It's so specific in what it provides that it needs a specific request. But at the same time, the room requirement can also be chaotic itself because within its specific instructions, it has been used by so many students that there is no order to how things are created there. It has hundreds of failed experiments. It has all of these things. And these things have not been classified. They have not been... There's no notes saying who left them and when. They mm-hmm. they are just a, a huge mishmash of students who have kind of left it there over centuries. Um, you know, the, this kind of this refuge, as the, the book calls it. And I think that's really interesting. It's like how cities that can often be built on top of themselves over generations. This is, yeah, a kind of living historical archive that just grows on top of itself without any order, but with still so much history. Yeah, absolutely. That is then destroyed by an all-consuming chaotic fiend fire. And it's interesting, too, because the room has provided what the DA needed, Mm -hmm. but to Umbridge, that would have been chaos, right? And Mm. Draco going in and fixing those cabinets, like he's actually fixing something that's broken, but then that opens up Hogwarts to this chaos for Hogwarts specifically, but then Dumbledore dies at the end of that situation, and then that just brings chaos everywhere. So it's, yeah, it's interesting that it This one room can have so much power for both chaotic and orderly things. And and it's also an amoral room where it Mm -hmm. serves people of 
whatever background or whatever intention as long as they have a need they can use it Mm -hmm. and so they and whether that is providing a form of chaos or or order it doesn't have to be orderly is necessarily good or right and chaos is necessarily evil or wrong Mm -hmm. but it's much more complicated than that totally yeah well what character did you bring to discuss today so i wanted to talk about Dolores Umbridge. Ah, yes. I mean, want is a strong word. Hem, hem. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Because I think she's a really strong agent of both. Both following the law or trying to get other people to follow the law Mm -hmm. and also breaking the laws when bureaucracy takes too long or certain rules prevent her from her aims which maybe her far-off aims are for order, Mm -hmm. but I think she uses chaotic means to get there sometimes. We see examples of this, like, you know, she can't shut Harry Potter up. Then she's like, okay, well, legally we can't do these things, so I'm going to go sidestep the law, send Dementors to go suck the soul out of Harry, which is obviously a terrible thing but it's also a very chaotic act you're trusting dementors to do what you're sending them to do and you're putting all of these other muggles at risk theoretically would be putting her own job at risk Mm -hmm. right to to do this thing and then you also see that she tried to use the educational decrees and the inquisitorial squad to stop resistance against her in any way But when that wasn't enough, then she uses torture quills, she uses veritaserum, and, you know, when they're in the Forbidden Forest and confronted by centaurs, the first thing she does is cite her job title, what department she comes from within the Ministry of Magic, and the ordinance about the land being under ministry jurisdiction. But when they don't accept that, she attacks them. Mm Mm-hmm. Which even leads to trauma for her, and I'm sure, you know, chaos in certain ways. Like, we don't even know where she was, what happened to her. Mm -hmm. Also, I think that her actions to grasp at order, and and definitely control, (laughs) uh, I think actually oftentimes result in chaos. Because she won't teach applied defense against the dark arts. And so an unsanctioned Dumbledore's army forms. She won't let kids talk about Voldemort. And then people turn to the Quibbler instead of the ministry-controlled Daily Prophet. And everything she's basically done throughout her time at Hogwarts results in the twins' departure during the Owls, right? Uh, This massive chaotic event that even undoes some of the work that Mm -hmm. some of the students put in and what they're supposed to be here at Hogwarts for. Her monitoring the mail and fireplaces at Hogwarts also results in Harry not having as much time and as many options to verify that Sirius wasn't at the Department of Mysteries. And that leads to them all going there and obviously Sirius's death. But it also leads to 
everyone finding out that Voldemort is back, Mm -hmm. which is exactly what Fudge and her were denying for so long, and obviously chaos ensues, and... Then in the in the final book with the Muggleborn Registration Commission, you know, I, I we don't really get to see necessarily the results of that, but I imagine that they would be chaotic as well because like wouldn't it actually lead to kind of the breakdown of current magical society if everybody who was Muggleborn working in the magical world is taken out from their jobs and the experience they have the competence they've built you know all of these structures and now they're just like gone and have to be filled by who who Mm -hmm. is going to fill those jobs i imagine it's not going to be other magical creatures because you would not allow that right and if what it seems like would be down the line from that type of policy would be you know stopping allowing wizards to have kids with muggles altogether you know if if you could do that i I don't know if magically that would be possible (laughs) but if you could then what you know does magic die out you know we we don't really know but uh, yeah i think that her grasping for order in all of these different ways both lawful sanctioned ways and through skirting the law you know i think oftentimes results in a chaotic end and yeah it just it kind of makes me interested in her motivations about why you know does she feel the need to have so much control over people and i guess in what ways has she been controlled as a short not stereotypically attractive woman who mm-hmm. likes fluffy pink gar- cardigans and bows in her hair while trying to have a career in a government you yeah. know so yeah i don't know she's an interesting character very much so even if a lot of the interest comes from infuriating <laughs> circumstances <laughs> yeah she's she's a great character and an awful person Um, (laughs) which is why she's such a great villain because there's a lot of interesting nuance behind her that sets her apart from the other villainous characters in the series but she also shown to be a hypocrite Mm -hmm. she she holds up order really as her only ideology she she believes in a kind of totalitarianness that doesn't necessarily have to be a communist or fascist if those are on opposite sides of that spectrum. Neither one of those ideologies actually would have mattered to her. That's her only political ideology, yeah. Yeah. She has human magical supremacy is definitely her ideology. Absolutely. But that totalitarianness outside of that kind of ethno-fascism, I guess, is different because she doesn't care about any individual leader. She doesn't, uh, she, she's behind Fudge when Fudge is in charge. She's behind Voldemort when he's in charge. And so for someone who is so narrowly motivated mm-hmm. by just the, the creation of this kind of totalitarian police state where there are no rights to privacy or to make your own choice of who to marry or what to know and what to learn. Like, all of these rights are denied. The only right that matters is the right of the government to do what it wants to you. If that's her ideology, she, I guess, 
might believe in it in theory to the, such an extent that she thinks that as an agent of that government, she can do whatever she wants, but she doesn't do it lawfully. She doesn't do it in a way that actually is done through laws or through... Well, she does until she can't anymore. Exactly. Then it's either we have to create a new commission mm-hmm. or I'm just going to do things outside of the law and it doesn't matter. Yeah. Or I just want that locket. Yeah. So I'm going to take it and I don't care if you are selling these things. Exactly. And not paying your magical taxes <laughs> or whatever it is. You know, She doesn't seem to care about that when Mundungus is concerned, but yeah. Yeah, so I, I agree. She is, I, I think, a really fascinating character to, to think about these concepts with because she is one of the best examples I've seen of a, a character that believes in order to such a villainous extent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, should we move on away from Umbridge to <laughs> someone a little less uh, angrifying, as I like to say? Sure. I, I know that's not a word, but I use it, so <laughs> isn't that how the language works? That's a pretty chaotic view of the language. <laughs> blah, 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 <laughs> blah. Uh, yeah, I, I wanted to talk about the Order of the Phoenix. Okay, okay, yeah. I think that's a really interesting name for this organization because it is an organization that also has very complex and nuanced engagements with an order and chaos. I take the name The Order of the Phoenix to, to very much be an allusion towards historical religious orders that were often militarized as well, things like the Templar Order, um, mm-hmm. that were often had a strict hierarchy um, and used military means to carry out its often religiously coded goals. So love when military and religion overlap. Yes. It's one of my favorite things <laughs> in the world. And so these, these I think, are, are fascinating historical groups. And I imagine that, that, I imagine that communities around the world would have similar organizations that could translate to order, even if that's not the word they utilized. Mm-hmm. But certainly... As someone like me who's played so much Assassin's Creed in my life, uh, where the Order of the Templars are the major enemy, um, that's the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about this, is is these groups that have been utilized in lots of fiction, but also were very much a part of historical activities, especially during like the medieval eras mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in Europe. So yeah, I think that for the Order of the Phoenix to be named after them, I, it does have the connotation of, of kind of secrecy that can often come with those. Though many of these orders did not operate in secret. They, they operated out in the open. They had flags and banners that showed that they were coming and they were doing what they saw as God's will. But over time, especially by the 20th century, they often got kind of uh, secret society style perspectives of them by society where, oh, the Templar order still exists and is still trying to manipulate things behind the scenes and... You know, it's a secret society like the, the Masons or have you. when, you know, mass killings of people who don't agree with you it was frowned upon a little more yeah. publicly. Yeah, they decided to do bit. it in, in secret instead. Yeah. Um, so that, that I think is, is an interesting element. And then because from what I understand, these, these orders had these religious undercurrents that I think is, is trying to put forward a vision of how they think society should be ordered. 
and mm. that vision has specific precepts of what is ethically correct, but also it has hierarchies that have certain people as having more power and authority than others. And so for the Order of the Phoenix to have this, it does and does not mirror those currents because I think... All we know is Dumbledore's in charge. Exactly. (laughs) But it seems like when talking about how the students want to join the Order of the Phoenix, it's not like they're like, well, we have to ask Dumbledore first. The people who are there are just saying whether they they can or can't. Mm -hmm. That means that there's probably not a firm requirement for entry into it. What are the Order of the Phoenix bylaws? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I doubt that they exist. And and some of the, the earliest characters we meet in the Order of the Phoenix, I think, kind of show this element too, where we meet someone like Mundungus Fletcher, who very much is operating outside of <laughs> traditional ethics in society. <laughs> yes. Um, but also someone like Tonks, who her unique form of magic, being a, a metamorph magus, means that she doesn't conform, even in the way that she looks, to one identity. Totally. Which I love. Me too. That is not orderly. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm sure a lot of people would suspect her. Mm -hmm. I'm sure if Umbridge was there when Tonks was in school, that would have been a really bad combination for (laughs) Umbridge. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And so, yeah. I think that it, it's interesting because they are less orderly than the Death Eaters, which has a clear hierarchy and uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> but they're, they're also, I think, trying to put forward and fight for a kind of social order that they see as necessary. One that, you know, is really about liberty and free choice. These kind of classically liberal ideologies that have become part of Western thought. I mean, maybe, or were they just created in reaction to the Death Eaters? I think they were, but what I mean is why they named themselves the Order of the Phoenix is because they are, if they, if they are an order, if they are trying to put forward some sort of order, Mm -hmm. I think the only ideology they have being essentially Mm anti-fascists is one of, yeah, concepts of liberty. Got it. But... We don't don't really know. know. (laughs) All of these are are guesses. But yeah, I think that as a group, I just am curious about what these these ideologies are and why that name was chosen both within the fiction and by J.K. Rowling. Like what what Mm -hmm. are the the connotations they're trying to to bring forth from that? And and these are the ones that that came to me. Hmm. Interesting. Which is also kind of interesting because the name is almost like contrary to itself because you're talking about order but the normal natural order of things in the world is death eventually Mm. right except here where this phoenix is concerned or if you happen to have all three deathly hollows or you know if 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 that's how you're reading that or whatnot oh that's Um, very interesting yeah. yeah and i mean they are not just in favor of order the way that Umbridge is, in that they Mm -hmm. work against the ministry as well. They're not trying to bring down the ministry, but they have different goals, at least for one year. Yeah, and they have all of these different avenues that they're pursuing. Mm Because, like, yeah, the reason Mundungus Fletcher is there is for a very specific reason with 
the networks that he has versus, yeah, working with like Kingsley or Tonks who are breaking the law to even be a part of this group, Mm -hmm. I'm sure. And then you have Lupin trying to recruit other werewolves and, you know, stuff like that. So it's just, it's, they are all over the place in the methods for gaining control. Whereas... I mean, I guess you could say the same thing is true to some degree with Voldemort because he's using both the official ministry to do things and they're also recruiting giants and spiders and all of this on the side. So, yeah. Cool. It is cool. You know what else would be cool? (laughs) Going into our compelling questions. I was going to say if I ask you a compelling question. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so my question is a little bit less about the text and a little more about us for a little narcissistic turn not really Um, i do love talking about myself so (laughs) bring it on so my question for you is how you see elements of order and chaos like in the books how has that changed as you've grown up yeah well i mean as i'm sure listeners have been able to tell over the three years that we've been doing this podcast (laughs) What I've experienced as an academic has very much affected the way I look at all sorts of structures and and kind of social movements and things like that. And so when I see ideas of order and chaos, I, I ask questions about, yeah, is there an ideology there? How does that compare with historical ideologies? Is this even one that is a explicit one or implicit? Is it more of a kind of cultural belief than a defined ideology like all these are questions I think that I have more because I have started to study historical people in different ways mm-hmm. and that's made it so that I now study characters in different ways totally. and their motivations in different ways so you didn't do that as a 10 year old not to the same extent no. <laughs> <laughs> so that that I think is is definitely an element I think another element is that I remember when I was obsessed with these books in middle school and in high school, I always dreamed of being a student at Hogwarts and thinking about how I would have reacted to the things that come up with Harry. Mm. And it would always be like, oh. Why are you doing that, Harry? Yeah, like, oh, who cares about the rules? Or like, oh, just punch Draco in the face or like whatever it is. I I was so opposite. I was like, (laughs) why are you doing this thing that's irresponsible and risky? Stop being so violent, Harry. See, I've grown into that more as, as I've become a boring adult, where now I'm all like, what are these children doing? Why is there no adult supervision here? Can someone please let them see a mental health specialist? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, whereas, yeah, as a kid, I just wanted to be a part of that world, and I saw how I would be in that world in a way that was probably much more chaotic than even Harry's participation. Oh gosh, more chaotic than (laughs) Harry. Oh dear. Because you started more like that. I started and have ended like Hermione. Yes, yes, exactly. Now even Hermione's a little too buttoned up for me sometimes, (laughs) but yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about things kind of like you know, the moving staircases and items flying through the air in charms class, you know, as like kind of when you're reading it for the first time, if, if, especially if you've done that as a child, like it adds to 
the magic. It adds to the whimsy and the excitement. But now I'm just like, oh, that's so impractical or dangerous, you know. And so it kind of makes me wonder, like, for myself, like, in what ways have I lost some of my enamor with whimsy and uncontrollable things as I've aged? Oh, yeah. If I if I was running late to class and all of a sudden a, a staircase was in the wrong place, I could I would just break down and cry. <laughs> Yes, and you would never remember to hop over that trick step. Oh, never. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I I think that's interesting, but I think that's kind of sad, too, to some degree. Mm. I mean, like, yes, be responsible. Yes, we need mental health professionals (laughs) working here. No, Fluffy should not have been there. You know, there's, there's some basic things that I'm sure almost all of us can agree on, but... I think I do feel a little bit of loss of like, oh, am I like, have I become like so cynical and critical that it's like harder for me to enjoy certain bits of whimsy and suspending reality in certain ways? Because, I mean, they've done studies at looking at how adults' imagination for most people changes Mm -hmm. over time, you know? What can you do with this paperclip? If you ask a kid, they're like, well, is it 20 feet tall? Well, (laughs) is it made out of rubber? You know, like there's just all of these options. Whereas us, you know, as adults, most people, I think, would be like, okay, well, how could you bend it in a way that could make it into a different usable object? Yeah, we, we don't have that necessarily that same enchantment i mean some people still do keep that right authors clearly artists and 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 stuff but yeah it was just something i was kind of thinking about i was also thinking about how it's kind of funny that some of those elements that like make life more chaotic um i think also is you know i've had to deal with increasing levels of you know chronic illness like chaotic things in life are just not charming (laughs) but now seeing things like political ways that order and law is exercised over systems over creatures in the magical world i see that more as a negative thing than Mm. i would have when i was younger yeah yeah the last thing that comes to mind for me is is thinking about the classes that they take and growing up seeing that as a student and being like, oh yeah, skiving snack boxes, that's cool. Or yeah, Trelawney's class sounds awful or whatever it is. And now that I'm a teacher, it's like, okay, Harry and Ron, you need to do your homework. <laughs> yes. And Fred and George, stop blowing things up in the halls and disturbing classes. Or stop doing experiments on students. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Madame Pomfrey doesn't have time for that. No, no. <laughs> so, yeah, that has changed. And at the same time, it's also like, please fire Professor Bins and hire someone who's competent. Yes. Goodbye, Professor Bins. You can be guest lecturer for whatever time period you're from. Exactly. <laughs> But why don't we move into your question for me? Sure. I was wondering if there were any characters in Harry Potter that you thought landed in interesting ways in the traditional Dungeons & Dragons alignment chart. Oh, do you want to explain that to our sure. listeners in case they're not as 
big of a <laughs> dork as you are. <laughs> so yes, if you are unfamiliar with this, Dungeons & Dragons typically has a alignment chart that has two axes. That And this is something that helps you kind of build out a character and, and help understand exactly what their motivations are. And these two axes are one that goes from good to evil. You're good, you're neutral, or you're evil. But the other goes from lawful to chaotic. You're lawful, neutral, or chaotic. And so it's not only about what your intentions are, but also the kind of ideologies and the methods methods by which you get there exactly yeah um so you could be a lawful good or a chaotic good and both might have good intentions but go about things in drastically different ways you could be true neutral where you are kind of going through life in a way that doesn't feel particularly influenced by any kind of ideology or moral code so you know i think it's an interesting way of, of organizing yeah intentions methodologies so i'd love to hear from you any characters that you think fall in interesting categories along that chart. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's talk about Hermione, because okay. I love Hermione. So I find her interesting in particular because I think she starts out very lawful good. Mm-hmm. But I think as the series progresses, she, especially with, one, the influence of Harry and Ron as her closest friends and to the really precarious vulnerable place she finds herself in in terms of being a muggle born in an increasingly hostile environment and so the stakes just get higher and higher and I think with that process she I would not say she goes to chaotic good <laughs> But she goes closer along that spectrum towards mm-hmm. there. Maybe she would fall in, in neutral good by the end of the series. I'm, I'm not totally sure. But she definitely does certain things. I mean, even not the last book, but even when she confunds Cormac McLaggen, right? Mm. Like, that is that is not a... I mean, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> is that a good? <laughs> but it's definitely chaotic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think she changes over time. And I like that, and I relate to that, because I've 100% changed over time, where I, as a kid, it was very, very, like, lawful good. I mean, for the most part, besides, like, stealing candy from my sisters and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I think I've come to be much more chaotic good not necessarily in practice but in theory so yeah i I think she is an interesting one yeah for sure i I will also say that lawful as a term doesn't necessarily have to mean according to the law Mm -hmm. but just to according to some set of laws or principles that you hold or that are held by a group of people so this could be... I mean, if it's good, though, isn't it always going to be a set of principles? Like, even if you're doing it chaotically, it's yeah, just so, chaotic methods but it's for a, the good end. It's a moral principle of what's good and what's right versus a principle of this is... It's almost like ethics. Of mm. This is what's laid down. I follow a code that says that when this happens, I need to do this. And so even if that leads to this other suffering... That's the what I'm supposed to do. I'm lawful. Interesting. Okay. I think um, Hagrid is definitely a chaotic good. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, very much so. <laughs> Wormtail. Icy as true hmm. neutral. As neutral neutral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he's not guided by anything, whether it, when he was a marauder or when he was a Death Eater. He's just guided by self-survival and whoever is telling him what to do. What benefits him the most, or at least what is least harmful to himself. Exactly, yeah. yeah. He's, he's just kind of making way, and, and he doesn't have an ideology of what's the right thing or wrong thing to do. He doesn't just seem to be, like, he's selfish in that he doesn't want to die, but it's not like he's trying to amass power and wealth. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that he's an interesting character because I wouldn't necessarily say that he's evil the same way that a lot of the other characters that we see are evil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think Luna Lovegood is? Good. I mean, sure. obviously. <laughs> I'd say she's either neutral or chaotic because chaotic is also often about breaking down orders of systems yeah orders systems exactly Mm -hmm. um so breaking down people's reliance on an ethical code or a legal system um you could you know in in our politics you could say a libertarian is is chaotic in a way or an anarchist um where these are people who believe that individual liberty your right to make your own choices is the most important thing and so Mm -hmm. it's an ideology that's behind that and that could be you know absolutely well-intentioned and good but this is just your way of, of thinking about that yeah and i think that the quibbler is similar to that where it is about questioning everything it is about not believing that the ministry is right or having faith in that system so i could see that that being uh a, a important aspect of her ideology for sure mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i think umbridge is pretty clearly lawful evil yeah because even when she uses unlawful means to do things, her aims are always still to institute these things in law that other people need to follow. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but maybe I'm hopefully neutral good. <laughs> you personally? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> sometimes I'm like, no socialism. <laughs> That's like not chaotic. No, that is lawful for sure. I mean, maybe it's chaotic here in the United States. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Dumbledore is probably chaotic good. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at Hogwarts. <laughs> yes. Seriously. <laughs> yeah, and, and the fact that he doesn't choose to explain himself to anyone, I think, is, is evidence that he doesn't actually care what other people think. He mm-hmm. doesn't abide to any legal system or moral or ethical system that isn't what he believes in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder if Ron is close to neutral neutral as well. Yeah, I think you could. I could see him that way. I mean, skewing towards good. Of course. Yeah. Yes. I think he still is someone who his intentions are to do good and to be compassionate and things like that most of the time. A lot of times he just doesn't understand what, when his privilege makes it so that he's not being compassionate. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes, yeah, he can just be a selfish person. But, you know, no one is always going to do every single one of their actions in whatever box they're put in. That sounds like humans being messy. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Chaotic even. (laughs) (laughs) But why don't we move into our missed opportunities? Yeah, so my missed opportunity is just that, you know, the Death Eater terrorism that was done at the Quidditch World Cup, I just want to know how did that 
affect the international community mm. and political leaders because a lot of them were there. Yeah. And you would think that there would be a big reaction with the fear of Voldemort and Death Eaters again and, and things like that. That sure, it seems like was a bit more localized in the UK, but also we know that at least in the at the time of the books i'm not sure about the the war before but you know they, they definitely cross borders and they get the giants and they find karkaroff things yeah. like that so they're not only in the uk but yeah i mean it's this huge international event we got to see i mean the, the next chapter right it's like mayhem at the ministry so like we know that it caused a lot of chaos within the ministry within the uk magical community but yeah what what does that look like in any ways abroad or would it not be a big thing because we have white male mass shooter domestic terrorists do things all the time that is targeted towards certain racial groups certain genders you know these different things mm -hmm. and that doesn't result in any international chaos and because it's been so normalized in our society it doesn't even really result in chaos domestically so yeah, yeah. i don't know i just am interested in that yeah and i i do think it probably would be seen more seriously outside of the country particularly because those foreign leaders were there mm -hmm. you know diplomatically if a foreign dignitary is visiting your country there is an element of the host country should be protecting that <laughs> right. foreign dignitary because if they are hurt while they're in a different country, that leads to a huge political backlash. Mm -hmm. And yeah, what that could mean for the Ministry of Magic, the British Ministry of Magic's standing with the rest of the world, I think is, is very serious. The fact that it's not even brought up and the way that foreign dignitaries are characterized in that match, I think, shows a lot of... <laughs> Rowling's Eurocentrism. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also, it would have been interesting, even if there was just, like, a couple comments of, we didn't have as many students visiting from Bobaton in the aftermath. So we, we have fewer students than we thought we would Absolutely. coming to Hogwarts, you know? Because if I saw that, I'd be like, mm, I'm not sending my kid yeah. there for this dangerous... <laughs> Uh, Maybe that's tournament. why in the movies there were no male Bobaton <laughs> students and no female Durmstrang students. Yeah. It just, for whatever reason, that choice to not come to Hogwarts because yeah. it's dangerous was very gendered. Yeah. <laughs> France protecting its men. <laughs> what is your missed opportunity? I would have loved to see in the books more engagement with concepts of wild magic. Mm. Um which I think is, is shown to be a serious concern by the ministry. The fact that there are these laws against underage wizardry and, and things like that. But we also see that, at least in flashbacks, characters like Marope don't seem to have been traditionally trained. Mm -hmm. And so is there a process by which magic has to be policed? by the, the ministry. And at the same time, we see how some of the most powerful spells are tied to concepts beyond just spell work. 
mm-hmm. beyond just what you're saying, how you're using your wand, but meaning, you have to mean it uh, for the unforgivable curses, for example. Intention, love being its own source of power. You know, these are, are shown in the system to be other sources of magic beyond just being able to wave a wand and say a phrase. Yeah, I'm thinking of like the, the magicians, the internal circumstances. Yeah. yeah, so I would love to see kind of more engagement with that. I did, you know, the Fantastic Beasts first movie dealt with that more, mm-hmm. but the books kind of leave it unengaged with. Yeah, it is. It's an interesting thing that I'm very curious about, too. Is there something about formalizing the spells, the having a wand, you know, and you have this formal education for it that kind of cuts off the ways in which your magic comes out chaotically? Mm-hmm. You know, if if Harry could be running away from a dog and suddenly be up in the tree... Mm-hmm. Um, or his bangs are, his hair is cut off except his bangs are left or whatever <laughs> atrocious thing happened to him and then his hair grows back by the next day. Like, if he could do that in circumstances where, yeah, he's going to be killed when he's facing down a dragon, like, you would think that that would still activate, but it doesn't after he learns. But, yeah, it'd be very interesting to see if that still activates for people who have not been formally taught. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't we move into our takeaways? I guess my takeaway is kind of off of, of your last point. Is order, is formalizing, is standards, are those things antithetical to magic in certain ways? We were talking about the ways in which Hogwarts is magical and the mm-hmm. staircases and you know there's all of these paintings and there's the room of requirement and you know that adds chaos to the environment so yeah just that's that's a really interesting idea that I would be very curious to like the next time I read the books pay more attention to where magic seems free mm. and where it feels more controlled does some of that have a role to play in fear of magical creatures and Mm. things like that? Yeah. Yeah, I think going off of that and thinking in particular about potion making because Mm. Snape talks about how it's not silly wand waving incantations, but it's about being able to basically follow instructions and do things in in what we would consider more scientific way. Mm -hmm. And... In his book, he shows also that you can, by following instructions, but following those instructions differently, change this potion. And so adding mm-hmm. a counterclockwise stir will affect it in some way. And, and there has to be a reason behind that beyond just magic. Mm-hmm. If he's able to work out these kinds of specific things, and, and we don't really see that about any, any kind of magic, why mm-hmm. it's a swish and flick that goes along with this. I think Snape's potions instructions in the Half-Blood Prince's potions book are the only times that we see a spell being created. So we don't really know what that process is like. Yeah, I'm curious as to what what a swish means magically in how you're developing a spell or, or, or trying to attempt a spell that leads it to be part of Wingardium Leviosa. 
Yeah, very interesting. And like, was it through scientific exploration that Snape discovered better, more efficient ways of doing things? Mm -hmm. Or was it some sort of like magical intuition? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Harry never does his homework, so we don't know as readers. (laughs) Yes. Well, can you bring up what we're discussing next week? So we are going to be returning to The Hunger Games and The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, and we are going to be looking at those through the theme of responsibility. Ooh, that'll be intriguing. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our social media and our website in the episode description, or you can join us at patreon.com slash geekbetweenthelines if you want to become a supporter of the podcast. We are so grateful to all of those who help support the podcast and keep us going, and all of those supporters also get access to some fun extra content that we put out. We want to thank Kimberly Tether Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find her designs at lacelet.com or searching for Lacelet on Facebook or Instagram. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek geek out. out!